trillions that we waste on the military and the police need to go to our communities. We need housing. We need education. We need health care. to see a celebrity right now does it matter about celebrity no this is the streets talking for themselves welcome to revolt black news i'm your host ebony k williams now to be clear this week's episode is not just another conversation about black folks and gun violence the other networks, they do that. But here at Revolt, we go deeper. Because see, we can't just give you headlines without giving you solutions. And see, how you get to solutions, you have to first understand the history and the proper context to change. We're gonna take a hard look at ourselves and our community, our circumstances, but we're also gonna hear firsthand from folks who have been there and done the work and are still doing the work. So we're gonna be joined first by someone who's truly doing God's work. I'm here with the executive director of Developing Options, and he's a former gang member, and now he's doing the important work of unifying and protecting our folks. I'm joined by Big U. Big U, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Thank you for having I'm, me. Absolutely. I'm doing great, brother. So I know you grew up in South Central Los Angeles, the Crenshaw District proper, and eventually, you know, gang culture, gang life uh, became an option for you. Can you talk a little bit about why at some point that became the pathway um, for you and so many others? Right. Um, I grew up. I grew up pretty much like most other uh, young brothers my age. I didn't have a father. I was displaced from my father for whatever reason between him and my mother. I ended up. My mother ended up moving to California. My mother had thirteen brothers and sisters, so mm. it was seven of the brothers moved out here, and mm. it was seven of us that all other uh, 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 kids who lived on Arlington, which is the first street to start the roll the sixties. Out of the seven, four of us are dead all killed to gang violence, all killed in the streets in L.A. I was a lucky when I had to do a 13, I guess my doing 13 years in prison actually saved me. Um, I, I like to say that sometime, but it, it, it just, it was where we grew up with. And it was, it was um, basically we didn't have a whole lot of options because unlike what's going, unlike what's, what, what everybody's starting to recognize, L.A. was one of the cities that just stopped doing anything for youth. We lost mm. the team post. We lost um, after school programs. We lost all of that. And uh, most of that money went to policing, and we can identify that now. Can you talk, was there a moment where you said, okay, whatever I thought was my limitation is not my limitation? Can you just share what really was the catalyst for your, your change in lifestyle? I, need, I feel like I got to go back and change the things that my name was attached to. Mm. I want to I be known as somebody, I don't want to be known as the boogeyman and then, the rest of the world, and that's all I'm known for if I intend to get into heaven. I, I don't want to, I'm working for the afterlife. 10 o'clock every night or every other night, I get about six or seven little, little youngsters who don't got nowhere to go. Yeah. Who just mobbing up and down the street. The same way I used to. Right. At a certain time. And so, either I got to go get them a room, mm. or make sure they get somewhere to sleep, or Make sure they got some clothes to wear, 
and, and, and so they know that the, the, the uncle look out. So what do you say to him, Big U? When, when you have these young people, I'm sure they're probably real young, 7, 10, 12 years old, and they are out here getting caught up in gang life already. Maybe they've been shot, like you were shot in, in your early teens. What, what's the words? What do you say to these folks to put them on a better path and all give the them time, options? I, yeah. I tell them all the time that this, you ain't, you're going to regret it 10 years from now. But I tell them right now that you're being a coward, though. Mm. You're not really want to stand up and take the hard route. You know what I mean? So I get a youngster, and they want to do music because a lot of them okay. come, to, come to me for music because of Nipsey, right? Nipsey, yes. Because of all of all of the success I've had with these youngsters in music, and I tell them that one thing you understand is the word that you're not getting is work. Because mm. when we going out, we hustling, we ain't working, right? Because you ain't working for what the other dude worked for that you took that from. We're going to get that from you. Ain't working. You 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 you're missing the work part. So then a lot right. of the homies like, man, where, where am I going to get a job from? Now, I'm stumped. I'm yeah. stumped. Now I'm trying to figure out. You brought up Nipsey's name, and I'm glad you did. So one of the things we see in our culture, well, mainstream society at large, people don't get their flowers while they can still smell them. Right. And one of the things I love that you did and your organization did, it was it did give Nipsey his flowers while right. he was still alive. Talk to us right. about how that made you feel and how it made Nip feel. You know, it, 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 it was beautiful to give it to him because – he was one of the youngsters when I came home. He was nineteen years, was, was eighteen or nineteen years old, and he was right there on Chris on Slauson hustling. And he's the kid I'm talking about. Right. But he had the drive to 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 want to do something better. And what I did was come in and helped him with that, because I can yeah. come in and help kids who are trying to go do it. I'm 37. He 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 19, 18, 19, and I came in and I seen the drive that he had. And right. he knew what he wanted to do. He just needed help to get there. The mm -hmm. Nipsey experience is helping our community with young black men. It's a great percentage of these kids already got their own clothing lines. It's right. doing their own music. It's inspired to do their own business. I'm the first one to show Nipsey how you go buy property. I bought my first property when I, when I bought my first property in 1989 in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Talk I about it. After I came home, a month, two months after I came out of California State Prison, I bought the apartment that my wife and my kids wow. lived. So wow. it was right there when we did all that. But I got to stop you because you you dropping some big gems, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you pick back up. But I just want to tell you what I just got from what you just said right now. Number one, you came straight out of incarceration, and you took the biggest and most important step towards black wealth building in this country, yes. which is you bought property. Boom. Number two. What you're doing for Nipsey and what you're doing for the kids you work with now, role modeling. That's what I hear you saying that's so critically missing in right. our culture and it's leading to some of this violence and gang life option. We don't have enough or at least there's not enough talk and conversation about the importance of role models for these young folks to have said, so the yes. gang life is not right. the only option. That's, that's big, brother. That's big. That's big. No. Yeah, I want to ask you this before I let you go. Um, what can we do? I want to take the program that we have across the country. Okay. I have a concert with the mayor's office. And I employ, well, in the employment, is, it's 11 people, but it's six critical workers. Got it. What we do is we have been responsible for dropping the gang violence in L.A. down to 60% 60, 60 than it, what it was in, in, uh, since 1965. Gang violence is down the lowest it's been. But it's done because we're able to get certain OGs who have respects and give them jobs. I want to take the program that we have, developing an option, and then we add a youth sports to it and youth mm -hmm. tutoring. 
And it's important that we know where each kid is academically. I love it. What you're saying, this is the solutions we're talking about, Big U. Yes. We're talking about jobs. We're talking about role models. We're talking about after-school academic tutoring. We see safer, more protective communities. All right, Big U, brother, you are doing truly God's work, making powerful and protective change in our communities. That's the solution-focused kind of conversation I wanted to have. Thank you, Big U. And we're going to take a break, and we've got more Revolt Black News coming up next. My son knew all the gangs. He was cool with all the gangs. Some guys got to shoot, and my son was the only one killed. My son lost his life due to gun violence on October 27, 2019. My son lost his life to gun violence September the 5th, 2018. So now we have to discuss the harsh reality of the lack of protection that's within our communities. Now, while there is work being done to defund the police, we got to keep it 100 and talk about how we better police ourselves while law enforcement does the work to be better. So I'm joined by Chief Patrick Labatt. He's running for Fulton County Sheriff. Chief Labatt, thank you so much for joining us, brother. It seems as if that most officers uh, show up in communities with a posture like very much of warrior. They're there to strictly enforce the law. And it, it creates a situation where, you know, we saw what happened just in Atlanta not long ago with the brother in the Wendy's parking lot. What should have been a DUI turned into uh, a homicide or, or at least the killing of this young brother. So when people see that, Chief Labatt, what can you tell them? What are some tangible steps in terms of de-escalation, in terms of bringing, I know there's lots of conversation when we talk about defunding the police, right? We're talking about reallocating funds and, and putting some of that money to either mental health uh, experts that can accompany officers perhaps to some of these uh, non-violent calls or things of this nature. You know, it's a lot of stuff in the air. Tell me from your experience, Chief, what do you think could work practically? Because how it's going now, we know this isn't working. Well, first of all, thank you, and thank you for having me. I, and I agree. I think the first thing, the two things that we have to do uh, on, the on the front of this, and that is the first is we have to change our mentality from a law enforcement perspective, which includes how do we help you in this situation? Mm -hmm. And so when we move toward, like, as you said, the DUI was, was evident in this case, but how do we get you home safely? How do we not, what, how do we put the arrest portion on the back burner? Right, mm -hmm. we will never arrest our way out of our problems. And so, if we inject that in a, in an early training setting, setting that our goal is customer service, mm -hmm. then we change the dynamic of the conversation. And then the second is we have to do a better job of taking care of ourselves. And what I mean is, in thirty years of law enforcement. I had one mental health evaluation, one psychological mm -hmm. exam, and mm -hmm. that was when I was a, when I first started. So I am proposing that we do that at least twice a year. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot to unpack. You become, you, I mean, you you see this and you become desensitized on a daily basis. But if you're able to unpack that, then I think for we better serve our community. 
Um, I think it's a bit too dangerous to, to clean the slate and just okay. start. I think we clean leadership, right? Everything starts with leadership. We see that on a national basis and it becomes and, and drills down to a local um, opportunity for us. And, that, and that's part of really, to be honest, why I'm running. It has to be, in my opinion, Chief, a collaborative community-based effort. Uh, and I certainly hope that more officers are seeing it like you and seeing that opportunity for change from the top down. Thank you, Chief Labatt, for your wisdom and a powerful insight on exactly what we need to do to make change. Now, we've got more Revolt Black news on the way after this commercial break. But first, a word. When I folks like me and you gonna rise up. Every city, every hood, we need to rise up. For my soldiers, we need to rise up. We decided to start a non-for-profit that focuses on eradicating violence and poverty. Poverty and violence go hand in hand. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Which now leads me to say that violence cannot drive out violence. Only peace can do that. Poverty cannot drive out poverty. Only resources can do that. Tell your brother that he's got to rise up. Tell your sister that she's got to rise up. When a folks like me and you gonna rise up. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. These are today's headlines. And the family of George Floyd is suing the city of Minneapolis and the four officers involved in his murder. Let's take a look. Today, we have filed a federal wrongful death civil rights lawsuit on behalf of George Floyd's family and all of his children. We are going to have an important conversation that continues based on this lawsuit that documents what we have said all along and that is it was not just the need of Officer Derek Chauvin on George Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, but it was the knee of the entire Minneapolis Police Department on the neck of George Floyd that killed him. New York lawmakers have introduced legislation that would require all New York City police officers to have personal liability insurance in an effort to deter police misconduct. Now, this would be incredibly important alongside ending qualified immunity to finally make officers fiscally responsible for their misconduct. In a unanimous vote, the North Carolina city of Asheville passed a resolution for reparations. Now, as opposed to direct payments, the Reparations Commission will be formed to make investments in areas where Black residents face disparities. Y'all know I'm from the state of North Carolina, and I have to say, I think this is how it has to look. This is a step in the right direction. First, the city of Asheville, we're seeing reports, brand new breaking news that perhaps Durham, North Carolina is going to follow suit. I think it's a good indication as to how reparations can look for all of us moving forward. And with the November election just a few months away, a new initiative has been launched called Our Black Party. 
Now, the entire agenda is to make sure that the establishment knows that the black vote must be earned. We've got some of their co-chairs here to speak on the matter. So let's hear more from the Honorable Candace Hollingsworth and Dr. Wes Bellamy. Thanks, Ebony. My name is Candace Hollingsworth. I'm here with Dr. Wes Bellamy, and we are excited to be here to talk about our Black Party. Our Black Party is a political platform that essentially is looking to ensure that the needs of Black folk are centered specifically in the realm of politics. Before you were Republican, before you were Democrat, before you were Independent, you were Black. And we want to ensure that our needs and our desires and what we need specifically for our community is met. Now, some individuals will say the timing is bad. You're going to ruin the general election. But the fact of the matter remains is that people will always say that it's a bad time for Black folk to collectively organize, mobilize, and do what we must do for ourselves. We've seen that throughout history, and we just can't allow for that to happen anymore. There is no time like the present, and we've seen the collective frustration on the ground, which means that there is a need for people to do something new. This isn't a third party but we are looking to mobilize and we will see ourselves to the finish line. So our Black Party, one of the things that we, that we consider a motto of ours is that our votes must be earned. And it is not just a slogan for a party, it is an individual declaration for everyone um, that is involved in the political process or even thinking about being involved in the political process. To recognize that your vote has value, that it has meaning, and that, it's, that it is worthwhile for someone to pay attention to your needs individually, as well as the needs of a community. So thank you for your time. Much love to Revolt. Make sure you go and support Our Black Party. You can visit us at www.ourblackparty.org. We need you. This isn't my party. This isn't his party. This isn't her party. This isn't their party. This is our party. All of us are in this together. Let's make it happen. Our Black Party. After alleged anti-white and anti-Semitic comments on his podcast, Cannon's Class, Nick Cannon was let go from Viacom CBS. Let's take a look. These people who didn't have what we had, and when I say we, I speak of the mm -hmm. melanated people. Right. They had to be savages. They had to be barbaric. They had, because they're in these Nordic mountains, they're in these rough uh, torrential environments, mm. so they they're acting as animals. Right. So they're the ones that are actually closer to animals. They're the ones that are actually the true savages. Akana has since apologized. Just yesterday, tweeting, "Quote: First and foremost, I extend my deepest and most sincere apologies to my Jewish sisters and brothers." His post went on to say, "Quote." I want to express my gratitude to the rabbis, community leaders, and institutions who reached out to help enlighten me instead of chastising me. And Colin Kaepernick continues to do elevated work with his Know Your Rights camp, this time donating $1.75 to helping Black and Brown communities. The initiative ranges from COVID-19 relief, legal defense funds for George Floyd protesters, national bail funds, and essential living costs and rent relief. Y'all, this is important because Colin Kaepernick is often criticized for doing a very simple nonviolent protest, but that's not all he did, y'all. So for anybody that claps back, Colin has been about this work. His Know Your Rights camp has given millions of dollars away, backpacks to students, all types of relief funds. This is what it looks like to put your money where your mouth is. Now that's it for today's headlines. We're gonna take a quick break, but when we come back, we're hearing from some educators that are gonna give us insight on the outstanding question as to whether or not schools will reopen this fall. Revolt Black News will be right back after this. I'm Dr. Steve Perry, 
head of schools at the Capital Preparatory Schools in New York and Connecticut. And I'm here on Black News to discuss the opening of schools in the fall in light of the overwhelming threat of COVID-19. Oh, distance learning is not what it used to be. What we see is that many people who are rolling out some form of distance lessons are just talking to the computer. There's no interaction. There's no multimedia. They're not dropping down videos. They're not calling on kids, what we call in, in, in the profession, cold calling. We're not, we're not calling on John, what do you think? Or Jack, what is your thought? Or Jane, what do you think? We're not doing that. When you do it for real, it, it's a very interactive experience. I mean, how many of us are now having access to our grandparents and great-grandparents and people throughout the country using this device? We shouldn't think that all distance learning is the same. The context within which you're teaching is what determines the methods that you use. So if you're going to sit there low energy and just talk to the screen like this, then I don't care who you are. Think about it this way. Distance learning is to education what the movies are to a play. If you think of the reading of your favorite play or a movie without the sound effects, without the intonation and the voice, without all the other elements, it's just reading words. But the reason why a movie becomes so epic is because of all the production that goes into it. I'm not suggesting you have to blow things up to get kids to learn math in a third grade. But what you can do is show meaningful videos. One of the things that we've done is we had one of our principals uh, make a uh, birdhouse. And when he made a birdhouse, he showed how you measure it and how, many, how, how long this line is and how that. It was a geometry lesson. He taught geometry by building a birdhouse. He couldn't have done that in our school, but in his house, he could do it because he has the power tools at his house. Don't get it twisted. Distance learning can set this thing on its ear. In fact, I submit to you that distance learning could be, for the first time in American history, the opportunity that poor black and Latino kids have always needed because we're no longer bound by our zip code. We could learn from people both alive and dead by putting together these compelling distance learning uh, uh, reels where you could learn from Stephen Hawking's right? And Juwanza Kunjufu at the same time, in the same course, could never be done before because we couldn't get the one is dead and the other one you couldn't get to your school. This is what distance learning provides for us. People need to stop complaining and bitching and moaning about how tough it is. Figure out a way, find a way to engage young people. Because the truth is, if you turn this screen off and stop teaching them, they're going to get up there anyway. They're going to watch their favorite YouTuber. They're going to TikTok their way through the rest of the summer. They don't have a problem with this device. They have a problem with old people who are afraid of it. We need to stop being afraid of it and turning them over to a Madden or 2K or, or, or Fortnite. They will spend hour after hour on this device. We just need to go where they are and use the device in the way in which we know it can be used, which is as a form of education, the best form when we really, really, really get it down. No one should ever mistake a pandemic for anything other than a pandemic. On the same token, as with most hard times, it is where we find our metal. It is how we find what we are made of. If you think of your friendships, the friends who you become closest to, in most cases, you became closest through the most difficult of times. It's incumbent upon each one of us, whether we're a scholar, an academic, and or a parent that in these most difficult times, each one of us has to find a way to make the best 
of an otherwise difficult situation. Hello, I'm Courtney English. I'm the former chairperson of the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education, and I'm here to talk about the upcoming school year as it relates to the, the pandemic of COVID-19. Well, to educators who are under the belief that schools should start uh, regardless of the pandemic, I have uh, one thing to say. Uh, they should first consider the health and safety of their students, of their staff, uh, above all else. Uh, while we know that in-school education uh, is critically important to a child's upbringing uh, and overall well-being, uh, their health and safety must come first. And so uh, for all those folks who are making plans uh, about sending kids back into schoolhouses uh, this fall, they have to, have to, have to absolutely uh, think very critically about the health risks that they're placing their students in as well as their staff. So as it relates to hazard pay, I think, look, I, I, I don't think we pay our teachers enough anyway. And so the more money we can throw at our educators, the more money we can throw into our classrooms, I think the better off uh, they'll be. I think they'll certainly appreciate it. I think uh, teaching is one of the uh, hardest jobs uh, in this in, in this country. I think our teachers are severely underappreciated. And so if you're going to send them back into a, into a classroom, uh, into a schoolhouse that may or may not be safe, I definitely think hazard pay should be on the table. Well, I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, this is a critical conversation that many policymakers, uh, many parents are going to, uh, are, are facing really, really important, difficult decisions. And so uh, let's get it right. And thank you all for the opportunity uh, to have this conversation. While COVID has impacted the lives of many people in various walks of life, I think that it has put students in a particularly uncomfortable position. As an incoming freshman in college, I can attest to the fact that many students do not know when or if they will arrive on campus and there's great uncertainty in the air. While the main goal of college is higher education, the experience is also a prominent part of it and COVID is definitely ruining the experience for a lot of students. One of my major concerns about returning to college with everything that's happening with COVID is that all of the students are coming from different parts all over the country, out of the country, and my main concern is the health for the student body while returning back to school. And as I go and look forward to my first year at college, dorming, meeting new people, I want the health and well-being of people in my community to be the very first thing we're thinking of when we're deciding whether or not to open up schools. Um, people I know, people I don't know, need their health needs to be at the forefront of this discussion. So I will keep my eye on the country and on my campus to see what decisions are being made. And I know I'm willing to do what it takes to keep everyone safe. Will you? Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now this week we're bringing you a brand new segment where we're gonna highlight black excellence in entertainment. I'm joined by journalist and content officer at The Root, Corey Townsend. He's gonna help me out. What's up, Corey? Hey, Ebony, how are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, this was, this was such a fun thing to put together. As soon as we decided we're gonna do this segment, I was like, I know just who to get, honey. My bro, Corey, <laughs> so this is perfect. So our first headline. Gina Prince-Bythewood has become the first Black woman to direct a big-budget action film with Netflix's release of The Old Guard. 
Also, the good news continues for the blockbuster director. She's also announced to direct The Woman King for TriStar Pictures. Now, this is a huge deal, right, Corey? I mean, we know Black women are reigning supreme in all areas, but to see this sister who also brought us, uh, what is it, Love and Basketball, uh, Beyond the Lights, and also, um, oh, The Secret Life of Bees, exactly. Um, so happy to see her and so happy that the film did so well. Did you see it? Um, no, I haven't seen it yet. It's on my list. I have not reached the end of Netflix. That is my goal by the end of this whole quarantine situation. But exactly. to us, Black women have always reigned supreme. Like, this is nothing mm. new. Black women have always been at the forefront of every facet of life. If it's politics, entertainment, anything you think of, Black women have been there and they've been the movers and shakers. And it is refreshing, also disheartening at the same time, to mm. see that now everyone else is finally seeing what we've seen and known all along. So yes. yes, it is amazing that she's doing this and we will applaud her, we'll celebrate her. And it's good to see black women painted in different roles because as black people, as black people we're multifaceted, right? That's exactly right, Corey. And I love what your point is in every category, right? I think a lot of times when we think about black filmmakers, um, it can just seem like they only make black films. And of course we know that's not true, but finally, like you're saying, the rest of the world is seeing the full scope of black excellence, particularly when it comes to films and Black female directors. So congratulations to Gina. Now the celebration of both Viola Davis and All Things Melanin continues. Viola Davis, of course, gracing the cover of Vanity Fair looking beyond perfection, right? And this was also <laughs> shot by a Black photographer. And this is the first time that's happened for Vanity Fair. This brother's name is Dario Calmes. So uh, I know you saw this cover, Corey. Tell me what your thoughts were. I did see the cover. I saw the cover and Viola Davis has not taken a horrible photo in my opinion. Every picture I've seen of her has always looked really well moisturized and rich. Her melon has always shone through. So yes. when I heard like Viola was on the cover of Vanity Fair before I saw the photo, I was like, I'm going to stand. Like I have no choice. Yeah. But you. And it was actually, I saw the cover. I was like, this is beautiful. And then I read that he was the first and I did some research and I was like, Vanity Fair, the first publication was around and I want to say 1913 wow. and uh, he was the first cover photographer for this magazine so again it is amazing but we still have so much more work to cover because the fact that he's the first and it's like in no, over a hundred years yeah that's crazy. over a hundred years 108 to be exact so it's like you are the mm -hmm. first black man like you didn't see nobody like there was no one in your peripheral that's that was it. like you know what you black man you can do a good job shooting this. All right, also in good black entertainment excellence news, Beyonce is doing very good work. Her Be Good Foundation is partnered with the NAACP. Now they've created the Black Owned Small Business Impact Fund and their partnership is gonna strengthen and economically empower small black businesses by giving all of those that apply and qualify $10,000 grants. So this is big, right, Corey? Now we know Beyonce has been doing very good work in this space for a long time. Um, I know she partnered at the beginning of COVID with the Twitter CEO uh, to give $6 million. And this is just a continuation of the work. Okay, so continuing all things black excellence in the vein of the Knowles Carter family, Jay-Z alongside Team Rock and Yo Gotti, they filed yet another class action lawsuit on behalf of the 227 Mississippi inmates for their dire conditions behind bars during COVID-19. Now, this is important, right, Corey, because Jay-Z and Team Rock have started this work already. They also had a, a class action that they were filing along with Meek Mill. The, the, the conditions of these prisons, I mean, it, it, people wouldn't believe it. 
I mean, you've got people with cancer, people with lupus, people with open wounds, infectious diseases that are not having any masks, no protective social distancing. These people are just in uh, really dire constraints and they have no place to go and no other option. So I'm very glad to see from a legal lens on this, Corey, uh, that Rock Nation and Jay-Z, Team Rock rather, is, is taking the charge from a legal stance. What's your take? Like, it's really dope that they're doing this, but we also have to realize that they don't see us as people. Like, mm. the reason that right. we're treated like this and the reason that we are in these conditions is because they see us as less than. So mm. it's not surprising at all that prisons are basically doing what they're doing to Black bodies. And because prisons were just an evolved form of slavery, essentially, in my opinion. And No, that's not just your opinion, Corey. That's per the Constitution. Listen. It's a fact. <laughs> like, right, it's a fact. Facts. We yeah. love facts. We stand facts. Like, prisons were just an evolved form of slavery. And the fact that, again, I love that celebrities are using their platforms to impact change and to do mm -hmm. good in our community, right? Because they could just be at home chilling. And I feel like the work is, needs to be done holistically, right? As a community, not so much as celebrities. Like, we all have our part to play. And, like, we all have work that we can do individually. Like, there's no job too small. There's no job too big. Like, everyone isn't a protester, right? Everyone, yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not everyone's ministry. Like some people are good for writing the notes or taking the minutes yeah. or aligning the Negro spirituals that you need to sing yeah. during the protest. Coming and, up with the narrative, the communication, the messaging. You know, there's all of that. Has their role to play. So I yep. feel that no role is too big. No no role is too big or small. And mm -hmm. no, like everything lends itself to the grant to the greater picture. And I feel that's what we lose sight of a lot. Like we don't look at mm -hmm. like, big picture. Like we're like, oh, he's only doing this one thing, but not realizing this one thing yeah. on the ripple that moves forward and shifts everything. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's always going to be folks, Corey, that you can never do enough for. But, but what I love about this and really all of these headlines, right, is it just shows what we already know about our culture, which we are excellent in every endeavor. So listen, Corey, I want to thank you so much for joining me. And I really want you to come back. We're going to do this frequently here on Revolt Black News because there's a lot of media outlets that you only hear about Black things when it's poverty or it's death or it's murder, it's something negative. There's a lot of good news in the Black community. So we're going to highlight that here and more. So listen, we've got more Revolt Black News after this. We're back with more Revolt Black News. And we're going to talk about COVID-19 and how it's making its way through our prisons and what's being done to help get prisoners out. Joining me are two very special guests. Brittany Barnett, she's from the Buried Alive Project. And also Linda Williams. Linda is the incoming president of Noble, the national organization of black law enforcement executives. So thank you to you both. Brittany, I want to start with you. You're the co-founder and one of the chief leaders of Buried Alive, which focuses specifically on getting out nonviolent drug offenders. And many of them have been sentenced to life without parole. And, and certainly that's really no life at all. So speak to us a bit about how you got involved with the work and in the wake of COVID now, how your work and getting people out of jail is really helping people escape from these horrible conditions of COVID-19. Hi, Ebony. Yeah, I started the Buried Alive Project with two of my clients, Corey Jacobs and Sharonda Jones, who were both serving life without parole for drug sentences and graciously granted clemency by President Barack Obama. Mm. And through this work, we provide legal representation pro bono to other people they left behind serving life for drugs. Now our work has been compounded by COVID and the possibility right. of a death by incarceration sentence due to 
a virus. Can you let us know a bit about what the process of getting people out? We know it's being called compassionate release because some of these people have pre-existing conditions. And just like you said, they're risking their lives just being incarcerated at this point. Uh, talk us through what the legal standards are for people to qualify for compassionate release right now in the wake of COVID. Yeah, it's actually all over the place. And that's part of the problem. There's no consistency. And so the Bureau of Prisons on the federal prison side, they have been tasked with identifying people who are at high risk for COVID okay. and releasing them to home confinement. But we've had clients serving life who've been identified for home confinement, told they were going home, and then told they were denied because there's no consistency. So we're having to go through the court where there's judicial discretion to release people right. or not. But having judicial discretion is one thing, especially when we have prosecutors who are literally opposing every single motion. And then mm. if we're seeing something we've never seen before on top of it all is the psychological impact. Our clients right. in prison are on 24 hour lockdown. Visits have been canceled since March. Phone calls are very limited. So there is a psychological impact that comes with COVID in prisons that is going to extend far beyond this pandemic. Mm -hmm. Now, Linda, again, your role in leadership with the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Officers, that, of course, includes people that work in corrective facilities. So tell us a little bit about what your organization and just leadership among law enforcement, Black law enforcement in particular, what is it doing in reaction to COVID pandemic and how it's affecting prisons? Mass uh, incarceration is a huge problem here in the United States. And a fourth of the world's imprisoned population is here in the United States. So we mm -hmm. already have a problem within our prison system with overcrowding. But 50% of the prison population are African Americans. And there so again, when you release those people, then it's our problem. Already, law enforcement is challenged with a myriad of responsibilities from every call. Now, some folks, there's a narrative out there, Brittany, that says that this uptick in violence, particularly in our communities, is due to the release uh, of some of these prisoners due to compassionate uh, release. However, that narrative doesn't really make sense to me, Brittany, because all of the people that they're releasing under compassionate release are nonviolent offenders. Now, my experience in the courtroom tells me that folks that go in nonviolent don't just come out violent. So, Brittany, can you, can you speak to that narrative and how it perhaps is, is misguided and just wrong? It is absurd, Ebony, <laughs> especially mm -hmm. when we see that prisons are, and jails are barely releasing people to start with. So right. there's no correlation in the uptick in violence to the number of people being released for COVID. It, the numbers just don't lie. The reality of COVID-19, as rampant as it is, we, we, we really are doing worst in the world in terms of containing this. These people are essentially looking at death sentences. I mean, let's, we have to say it plain. Just paint a picture, if you will, as to some of what you have seen and what your fellow law enforcement officers, particularly those that are inside, Linda, what are they describing these conditions really look like? Where a prison is designed to maybe house two persons to a cell, there's overcrowding sometimes three or four or even in a communal environment where you have hundreds there for, for waiting for classification to get to other uh, parts of the prisons. So even though these inmates, and like Brittany said, have heartbeats and they are human beings, they are subjected to this because of uh, the consequences of their actions. But now you take law enforcement, you take that prison personnel that go in, that are somebody's husband, somebody's brother, they're coming to work to do their job, to do their right. job well, 
but they're in this volatile crisis because they have no recourse. Even if they're wearing the mask and the gloves, it is still a limited and overcrowded and a very unclean environment. Our mass incarceration has been a problem since the beginning of time, and it's not getting any better. That's right. So to conclude and wrap it up, Brittany, I want to end with you. Again, because to me, so much of this is, is both the legality and the politics, right? Look at what happened in, in California and San Quentin. A third of the prison population infected coming down with COVID-19. What can we be doing as everyday citizens to implement a grassroots effect on the political side of this that can ultimately, we hope, give us a change and solution on the inside? As a community with loved ones in prison, my mom was in prison before, we have the power that we need to take in our own hands as well. We need to hold politicians accountable to ensuring that our loved ones are safe. Our loved ones were punished for committing a crime. There's no doubt about it, but that punishment should not be quadrupled in the face of a pandemic. Our politicians have to be held accountable. We have to put people first. And most importantly, we got to remember, Ebony, there's nothing more urgent than freedom. No, and it's inhumane and it's unconscionable, as you said. I I think it's so important. I mean, who among us, uh, who among us, especially in our culture, in our community, don't have a personal loved one or close friend that has been touched by incarceration? You know what I mean? So it's very real. It hits home for everybody I know, including myself. And, And we have to keep humanizing the people that we love, because as you said, Brittany, maybe you did something wrong. Maybe there was a sentence to be served, but it shouldn't be a death sentence. Brittany, Linda, I want to thank you both for this conversation. It's invaluable, um, and we will take it and we'll do something about it, as both of you are doing. You're doing something about it. Thank you both. Thank you. Today was the episode of Revolt Black News that we all needed. See, it's not just about what's happening out there. It's about why is it happening. See, the statistics, they tell us one thing. But when we bring this conversation inside our communities and we add our perspective, we get a whole nother story. So here's the deal. Two days ago, 87 protesters were arrested right outside of the home of the Kentucky Attorney General. Why? Well, because the people that killed, the cops that killed Breonna Taylor, they remain free, y'all. There's also a virus that is disproportionately attacking our community right now. On top of that, we know the dire risk of being infected given the bullshit protocols, non-existent protocols that exist inside of our prisons. So to demand justice like this in this moment, for our young heroes to risk their lives for the sake of justice, for Breonna Taylor and so many others, that's where our energy must go. And with that, that's why we have to go to nationalbailout.org. Donate so that we can free our modern day heroes who are willing to risk it all, risk their very lives for the justice we all deserve. Again, y'all go to nationalbailout.org. If you look under their bailout toolkit, you'll see where you can donate, because we have to. Again, we have to stay on our post We have to stay on our duty because we have to arrest the cops that killed our sister, Breonna Taylor. For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.